This morning, I want to start with a little history lesson. Back in the 1820s, there began this kind of groundswell movement. It was led by some preachers by the name of Charles Finney and Nathaniel Taylor. And in their study of the scripture, they came to a conclusion that all people mattered to God, regardless of their skin color. And so this meant they became very, very passionate about the slavery issue, and they began to preach against it. And so there were some people who agreed with them, and this began the abolitionist movement. Now, most of these abolitionists were peaceful. They, they were pacifists. And so they were seeking to change things through dialogue, through preaching, through trying to change laws. But one guy was rather frustrated by this. His name was John Brown. Now, I went to John Brown University, but my university was named after a different John Brown. The John Brown that I knew, well, I didn't know him personally, but he traveled around as an evangelist. This John Brown, his life was about freeing slaves. But by about the 1850s, he was really, really frustrated because in the South, slavery was still enmeshed. The, the black man was still being suppressed and laws weren't being passed. The culture just wasn't changing. And he was getting frustrated and he was coming to a conclusion that the pacifistic tendencies, the, the peaceful approach wasn't working. That the only way they were going to free slaves was through force. And that meant violence. And so in 1856, John Brown and some of his men went and dragged out five pro-slavery supporters out of their cabins in the middle of the night and hacked them to death. But Brown wasn't done. In 1859, he began his famous raid. He thought if he could get into the armory at Harper's Ferry in West Virginia and manage to steal the stockpile of weapons that the federal government had there, then the slaves would rise up and join in. And then he could give them weapons and they would fight and slavery would be abolished. Well, Brown and his 21 men, they had actually no problem getting into the armory. There was only one guard. They took him out, no problem. They got in, they got the weapons. The problem was word spread rapidly and pro-slavery supporters grabbed their weapons and showed up at what became known later as John Brown's Fort. And they laid siege against John Brown and his men. He only had 21 guys. Some of them died, several were injured. And the pro-slavery supporters kept them pinned in there until the, a, a company of Marines showed up, barged in, and arrested those that were alive. Brown and his men that were still alive were put on trial, found guilty of treason against the government, and their sentence was being hanged to death. Now, some historians argue that John Brown's hanging actually became the catalyst that led to the Civil War a few years later. And abolition did happen. Slavery came to an end, but it came at high, high cost. When a person or a group of people feel oppressed, when they feel suppressed, they begin to get frustrated and they want to fight against these bonds. This is what many of the slaves felt. They, they wanted to experience freedom. But it's also what John Brown felt. He was frustrated. He felt like the bonds of slavery were so tight. It was almost like it was against him. And he was so passionate about this 
That when laws weren't being passed, when the pacifists weren't joining up with him, he got more and more frustrated. One of the most famous abolitionists was a man by the name of Frederick Douglass. Brown tried to get Douglass to join up with his movement. Douglass was so leery of John Brown and his tactics, his, his approach, his personality, that Douglass actually took a step back and away and encouraged others to keep their distance. And that frustrated Brown even more, which led to the violent outburst that came in 1856 and again in 1859. The thing is, this isn't just a problem that John Brown had. And it's not just a problem that slaves have experienced. It's something that you have experienced. Maybe you had a job. Maybe you're in one right now where you feel oppressed. You feel suppressed. And it frustrates you. You feel like you're being talked down to. You're not valued. You almost feel like a slave. Now, you're not. You're getting a paycheck. But still, it's kind of how it feels. And so you begin to, like, just br bring about insurrection by complaining to the other coworkers. Maybe when the boss gives you a project, you don't do it exactly as he says, just so you can hold a little bit of control. Or, or maybe you went out in a blaze of glory. You stormed into his office. You threw your name tag down like a grenade. You let loose a verbal assault, and boom, you are out the door never to return. Maybe you grew up with parents who were a little too authoritarian. And so as a kid, you found yourself wanting to rebel. You rebelled by the friends you chose. You rebelled in substances that you took. You, you rebelled in all sorts of ways because you just felt like they were suppressing you. This is why there are sometimes divorces and adultery. Some people feel trapped in this marriage. They, they feel suppressed, and so they fight against it in these hurtful ways. Even students do it. If they're feeling bullied, there comes a point where they're just so frustrated by the constant mocking that they just react. Sometimes it's verbally, loudly, and sometimes it's even violently against others or even against themselves. This is the struggle of humanity. We feel this oppression against us, and we want to fight back. But it's not just this physical thing that we feel. I, I feel like the story of humanity calls to something deeper, a, a deeper struggle. And we see this back in the scriptures, and it goes all the way back to the very beginning. The first book of the Bible, Genesis. When Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, they exchanged the loving leadership of their creator and became enslaved to sin. When, when Adam's teeth broke through the skin of that fruit, Sin began to reign. Sin became the master. And ever since, mankind has been trying to get back to Eden. Adam and Eve got kicked out, and we've been trying to find our way back to that paradise where things are good, where things are happy, where everything is glorious. And so there's a couple of routes that some people take to try and get there. One route is what some people would call legalism. Because Adam and Eve broke the only rule they think, well, if we just uphold the law, if we just do good enough things, we could like earn our way out of this slavery. And, and if we do enough good things, then maybe God will look at us and go, oh, you know what? You're good. I'll rescue you from sin. Come back into Eden. Come into the kingdom of heaven. You're good. That other people, they go after the happiness of Eden through what I call licentiousness. It's where you think you have license to do whatever you want to in order to be happy. So that means you can 
eat whatever you want, drink whatever you want, sleep with whomever you want, shoot up whatever you want, watch whatever you want, anything to try and get back to the happiness of Eden. But the problem is, whether you take the legalist route or the licentious route, sin still reigns. It's still the master. And it's almost like sin just laughs in our face. Like, go ahead, try. If you want to work your way out, go ahead. Because you can't. You're too deep in debt. You'll never do it through the legalistic route. And you want to try all these other things? Sure, go ahead. Try to get happiness. Because it's like salt water. The more you drink it, the thirstier you get. No matter how much we try, sin continues to reign. And it holds mastery over us. And then we get more and more frustrated. So we apply our legalism more and more. Or we apply our licentiousness more and more. We keep going after it. Sometimes we even jump ship and try the other route. And eventually we start realizing, I can't do it. And that's when we realize we need an abolitionist. Today we're going into the third part of our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've already heard, Jesus says some really tough words. To to our modern ears, they just sound kind of strange. But to Jesus' original hearers, oh my goodness, it would have been unexpected. It would have been shocking. And as we look at it today, we're going to see that there is both bad news for the legalist and the licentious, but there's also good news. And that's what we're going to see today. So let me pray. Father, as we get into the scriptures right now, would you be the ultimate teacher? Would you help my foggy brain to not be a hindrance at all to this, but may your spirit take over and speak to the hearts and minds of these people? Because I look out over this this group, and I see people who are in all different stages of their spiritual walk. And so to think that I can somehow say something that impacts each of them is kind of ludicrous. But Father, I believe you can do that because you know their names, you know their stories, you know their worries, you know their fears, you know their weaknesses, and you love them. So today, would your love come through your scripture? Would it come through my voice? Would it come into their hearts and their minds? And they would leave here desiring to go deeper with you no matter where they're at on this journey. So Father, would you take over and do what you desire? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open it up now to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. If you do not have a Bible and want to use one, all right? I'm old school. I'm going paper. If you would like a paper Bible, just simply slip your hand into the air. One of our ushers will give one to you. I also have it on the screen for those of you that are maybe allergic to paper or, you know, can't, can't scroll on a phone. So we're, we'll, we'll get you covered today. Um, Today's week three of this uh, series, two weeks ago when we kicked it off, we covered the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus starts off with these nine Beatitudes, and we saw they were quite unexpected. They, They were like these reversals. Some of the things he said almost seemed backwards. But what we discovered through that was that happiness, which we're all longing for, happiness is not a what? It's not a new car. It's not a new house. It's not a new relationship. Instead, happiness is a who. And we discovered that that who is Jesus. And then last week, we talked about salt and light, and we also handed out rubber bands. And we saw that just as salt goes to serve the meat, it helps to preserve it or season it. It helps to change the flavor, or or how light can change a dark room, or how a rubber band is supposed to stretch and serve something else. That if we claim to follow Jesus, that's to be our lives. We are to get out there and to serve others, to help hold them together, to help bring God's grace to preserve people, to shine the light of Jesus to them. 
And so this week, we come to these unexpected words. I'll, I'll be honest. It doesn't seem to flow. Like, as you look into the rest of Jesus' sermon, as we'll be seeing over the next several weeks, you can see how he hits these various topics. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, I mean, we've done the Beatitudes, we do salt and light, and now suddenly we talk about the law. And this is what Jesus says. Verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there must have been some people in Jesus' day who thought that Jesus was going to abolish the law. The, the word, the law, it, it refers to the Mosaic law. It was the law that God gave to Moses to kind of help guide and protect and, and keep the covenant relationship between Israel and God. When Jesus was saying these words, the law had already been in effect for probably about 1,400 years. I mean, put that in perspective. When Jesus is talking here, Israel is under Roman rule. At that point, it had been about 100 years. This summer, America turns 240 years old. We've had all sorts of laws. They've changed. They continue to change. Even our Constitution has had amendments added to it over the years. So imagine living for 1,400 years under basically the same law. I would imagine there would be some people going, oh, please abolish this thing because I can't seem to do enough. I'm so worn out of this law telling me what to wear and what not to wear and what to eat and what not to eat and who to sleep with and who not to sleep with. And I just, I just can't take it anymore. There's so much work. I'm so tired. And they'd look at Jesus and see the way he taught. He, he taught not like the other rabbis. He taught like someone with authority. And they thought just maybe he was here to give them something new, something more refreshing, something that would get them back to Eden and make them happy again. And so to hear Jesus say, I've not come to abolish the law, would cause them inside to go, oh, Jesus, I had such high hopes. Then why in the world are you here? But there were others in Jesus' audience that would have been listening. And when he says, I've not come to abolish the law, some of them would have gone, Whoo, oh, good. Because I thought for sure that that's what you were trying to do. Because, I mean, I've seen the way you've interacted with your disciples and the things you're teaching them and, and some of the things you've said. And I, I was getting a little scared there, Jesus. I, I thought you really were going to get rid of this thing because this is what God gave us. I mean, you're just a carpenter from the scorned city of Nazareth. Who are you to get rid of this law that the Almighty God gave to our greatest prophet and leader, Moses? And so, you know, I'm actually really relieved to hear Jesus. You're not going to get rid of it. So you've got half of his audience going, oh, and half of his audience going, whew. And that's when he then says the unexpected. We've got to finish verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And I could just imagine some of the people in the audience going, 
what? Fulfilled the law? What do you mean? You see there in the next couple of verses how Jesus has a very high view of the law. In fact, the ESV, they translate it, not an iota, not a dot. Uh, Lindsay read from the New International Version. You saw how it said, not a letter will be erased. It's like, you know, not even the dot over the I or the cross of the T would be eliminated. So this is a very high view of the law. Why does Jesus have this high view? (laughs) Because he wrote it. He's God the Son. He was there when God gives it to Moses. And so he wrote this thing. He wrote this thing to help show the people you can't do it. And that's what he points out in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) Imagine going up to the W, signing up for intramural basketball, and they assign you to a coach. You walk up to the coach, hey, I've been put on your team. The coach looks at you and goes, "Uh, no, you haven't. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have. They, they said that you're going to be the coach. No, I only have people on my team that are better than Michael Jordan. You, you do not look like you're better than Michael Jordan, so you can't be on my team. You're going, wait, wait a second. Like, no one was better than Michael Jordan. I, I know some people would say, you know, Kobe Bryant or LeBron James or Steph Curry, but I mean, come on. We all know. It was Michael Jordan. Yeah, or or you, you head to the golf shop, and you get ready to plunk your money down. You're going to head out on the green, and they look at you and go, oh. We're so sorry. You you can't play unless you can prove that you've played at Augusta National and that you broke Tiger uh, Woods' record from 1997. No one's broke that record. Not even Tiger himself has broken that record. I'm sorry. You, you, You can't play here. That's what it would have sounded like when Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because the scribes and Pharisees were passionate about the law. Their whole life was about the law. The scribes, their job was to sit there and take parchment and take a a, a copy and write it out letter by letter, getting it exact. And if they made one mistake, crumple the whole thing up, throw it in the fire, and start again. They were passionate about it. And, And the Pharisees, they were quite proud of how well they could adhere to the law. They, they, they were, I mean, they bragged about it. They, they tried to uphold every little part of it. So when Jesus says, not an iota, not a dot will pass away, the Pharisees are cheering him on. Yeah, that's right. Yes, that's the law, and we're doing it. And then he drops the bad news bomb. The only way you can get in, though, is if your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So it's got to exceed that. So you mean like the Pharisees and the scribes, even they can't get into the kingdom of heaven. So if they can't do it, no one can. Because the licentious person, I mean, they've just been going after happiness through any means possible. And so it's evident to everyone that how sinful they are. They're not even trying to uphold the law. So there's no way they're making it. But the legalists, they've been trying, trying, and trying, and trying. And yet, how are they going to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes? I mean, they're the professionals. I can't do it. No one seems to be able to get in to the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus drops that bad news bomb, that's where it opens up the aftermath of the good news. Because you see, Jesus is the only person who ever lived on this earth a completely sinless life. That means that he had a righteousness that exceeded the Pharisees and the scribes. 
And that's why back in verse 17, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Because he wrote the law, he gave the law, because the law pointed to him. The law said, you can't do it. You think you can. You think you can earn your way back to Eden, but you can't. Because you've been trying for 1,400 years, and look what it's gotten you. Now I'm here, and I fulfill the law. It's done. It's completed. It pointed to me the whole time. My righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So you know what that means? If you are a legalist, if you have been thinking that you could somehow earn your way to heaven— you need to now realize Jesus has already done it. The race is won. It's over. And so instead of striving to, to get the law, you now just get Jesus. And you get his righteousness. Or, or if you're the licentious person, that, that you've just been chasing after happiness through whatever selfish means you can, then you need to stop running after your happiness through all these other things, and you run to Jesus. The Apostle Paul used to follow Judaism to the letter of the law. He was a legalist of legalists. I mean, he was the best of the best. He would have been the religious Michael Jordan of his day. And yet notice what this reformed legalist said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. After listing several things of how great he would have been in the eyes of the world, how, how clean, how, how righteous he was, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear it? He's saying, I tried to get back to Eden through the law. And I was good at it. I was the best of the best. And yet, no matter how much I did, I couldn't pay for my sin. I couldn't get out of the pit. Sin still reigned. But then I saw Jesus. And I saw what he did. How he fulfilled the law. How he lived a complete righteous life. How his righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and Pharisees. But yet he went and died a sinner's death. He died in my place. He was treated like a criminal. Even though he'd never done anything wrong. And then he rose again from the dead. And then he offers you his righteousness. It's the great exchange. You can take your legalistic strivings. And your licentious pursuits. And you can actually give them to Jesus. And he nails them on the cross with him. And instead, he says, here's my righteousness. I did it all. I completed it perfectly. So it's now yours. It's insane. It's crazy. It's unexpected. And yet it's the only place you're going to find life. So this means that if you struggle with legalistic tendencies... That, that if you somehow think you're better than others, because I, you don't drink very much, you, you don't cuss nearly as much as your coworkers, you know, you, you've never murdered anyone, you, you haven't been sleeping around, and so, I mean, you're pretty good. So surely, when your day comes, God will have mercy on you and go, you know what, you're really good. Yeah, come on in. The, the problem, though, is you've been stained by sin. 
It, you can't earn your way out. Sin would love for you to think you could. It'll just laugh and laugh and laugh. Well, you have to realize that you've got to come to a place where you say, I can't. I can't get back to Eden this route. But Jesus can. And you exchange your attempts at righteousness and you accept his fulfilled righteousness and it becomes credited to you. And that's your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. If you struggle with licentiousness, your, your life has been a pursuit of me. You've been going after it through food and drink and sex and addictions and money and, and reputation. And yet it never seems to satisfy. You keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing. You also need to come to the same place as the legalist and say, I can't. Because sin would love for you to continue to chase down these paths because it knows it just leads to dead ends. It does not want you to see, though, that there is one path. But it's not through your own efforts. It's not through your own pursuits. It's through Jesus. You've got to let Jesus lead. And that's hard. We would love to somehow be a part of this. And yet, if we want to have this entrance into the kingdom of heaven, we have to accept the righteousness of Christ because only his righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes. Only he can get us into heaven. So, if you've been pursuing after legalism, stop. Stop your legalistic strivings. If you've been going after it through licentiousness, stop. Stop that pursuit. Because to do that only allows sin to continue to reign and only leaves you continuing to feel more and more frustrated. And it's foolish. Because sin has been defeated. When Jesus died on that cross, sin thought it had defeated Jesus. But in fact, Jesus defeated sin. <laughs> that when those nails went into Jesus' wrist, sin actually drove the nails into its own coffin. That, that when that spear pierced into Jesus' side, sin actually had the spear pierced into its own heart. Sin came to an end that day. You do not have to sin. You can be free. But it's only through Jesus. It's only through surrender. So if you want to strive for something, strive after Jesus. Get him. Cling to him. Hold on to him. Make him the center of your life and your identity. Don't make it about your legalistic pursuits. Don't make it after your licentious pursuits. Let Jesus lead. Let his righteousness become your righteousness. Let him be your abolitionist. So Father, Help us, because it is so difficult to surrender. We, we want to have some hold in this, to some part of this. We, we've been striving in our legalism. We, we think that we can be good enough, and yet we can't. So forgive us, Father, for that. And, and some of us in this room, we, we've been going after it through just selfishness. We, we think we've had license to do whatever we want. Our, our, our world teaches us that's where happiness is found. And yet, we keep doing it, and it's not working. And we thank you that we're forgiven. And you offer us your righteousness. So God, I pray that right now, you would just deal in the hearts of, of people. That you'd help them to, to admit, I can't. I can't do it through my legalism. I can't do it through licentiousness. I need you. Help each and every one 
in this room to come to a place where they would say, I want to let Jesus lead. But God, we sometimes don't know how to do that. And so I pray that just through your spirit, you would give us the confidence that you love us, that you're with us, and you will help us each and every day. That when we do slip, when we give in to those old patterns of sin, you're there to forgive us as we confess it to you. So Father, I pray for someone that might be here today that has never placed their faith fully in you. Maybe they've carried the name Christian, but but deep down they know that, that your death on the cross has not been the center of their identity. And today, they want to make that step of faith. Would you, would you, Lord, right now, just lead them to make that step, to admit, I am a sinner. I can't do this anymore. I can't get back to Eden on my own. But you've made the way. You've made the path. And you welcome me into your kingdom of heaven. And that they would find rest there. And pray for anyone who knows you. They, they, they maybe at one time made a, a confession of, of faith in Jesus. They, they signed something. They went forward at a, at a, a church service. And yet they've been struggling. They've been slipping back into patterns of sin. They've been judging other people. And yet they're feeling frustrated. Would you help them to see today they do not have to allow sin to be their master. That you can be their master. You can be their leader because you are their creator. Your image is upon us and you want to reshape and remake that image so that we can go into this world and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So Father, would you call your kids home? you do the, the work on them that only you can do so that they get the joy today and you get the glory. So Father, would you just help us to pursue you, to fall on our knees, to say, I can't, but you already did. You are our abolitionist. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.